Hello everyone and Merry Christmas. This is AJ and this is the second installment of Christmas Stuff You Should Know. Now this next essay I read in preparation for an episode but it ended up being a little bit of a wash since it was kind of too short to make an episode out of and it was really similar to something we had previously done on Stoics. This is Consolation to Helvia uh, written by Seneca. Now, Seneca was one of those wealthy Roman statesmen who's, you know, got a pretty storied, crazy life. But part of that storied craziness is that while he was advisor to Emperor Claudius, uh, he was accused of having an affair with having adult having an affair with Julia Livilla, who was Caligula's sister. And then the the sentence of death was put upon him, but Claudius, you know, being fond, kind of fond of Seneca, commuted that to exile, and he was exiled to the island of Corsica for a good long time, I think eight years before he was brought back to be advisor of Nero. Now, all of that is mostly interesting background information, because what I'm going to read to you is of consolation, and it's written to Helvia, and that's his mother, pretty much on the occasion of his exile. So she was kind of falling apart that he'd been sent out of Rome, and he, being the Stoic that he is, sent her this letter to make his mom feel better. And that is what I'm going to read you today. This one is a little bit longer, so, you know, heads up if this one takes me almost an entire episode to get through, but, you know, (laughs) you don't gotta listen. This stuff is free. Okay. All right, so here we go. My very best of mothers... I have often felt eager to console you, and have as often checked that impulse. Many things urged me to make the attempt. In the first place, I thought that if, though I might not be able to restrain your tears, yet that if I could even wipe them away, I should set myself free from all my own sorrows. Then I was quite sure that I should rouse you from your grief with more authority if I had first shaken it off myself. I feared too, lest fortune, though overcome by me, might nevertheless overcome some of my family." Then I endeavored to crawl and bind up your wounds in the best way I could, holding my hand over my own wound. But then again, other considerations occurred to me which held me back. I knew that I must not oppose your grief during its first transports, lest my very attempts at consolation might irritate it and add fuel to it. For in diseases also, there is nothing more hurtful than medicine applied too soon." I waited, therefore, until it exhausted itself by its own violence and being weakened by time, so that it was able to bear remedies, would allow itself to be handled and touched. Beside this, while turning over all the works which the greatest geniuses have composed for the purpose of soothing and pacifying grief, I could not find any instance of one who had offered consolation to his relatives, while he himself was being sorrowed over by them. Thus, the subject being a new one, I hesitated and feared that instead of consoling I might embitter your grief. Then here was the thought that a man who had only just raised his head after burying his child and who wished to console his friends would require to use new phrases not taken from our common everyday words of comfort. But every sorrow of more than usual magnitude must needs prevent one's choosing one's words, seeing that it often presents one using one's very voice. However this may be, I will make the attempt, not trusting in my own genius, but because my consolation will be most powerful since it is I who offer it. You never would deny me anything, and I hope, through all gri- though all grief is obstinate, that you will surely not refuse me this request, that you will allow me to set bounds to your sorrow. Part 2. See how far I have presumed upon your indulgence. I have no doubts about my having more power over you than your grief, than, than which nothing has more power over the unhappy. 
In order, therefore, to avoid encountering it straight away, I will at first take its part and offer it every encouragement. I will rip up and bring to light again wounds already scarred. Someone may say, what sort of consolation is this for a man to rake up buried evils and to bring all its sorrows before a mind which scarcely can bear the sight of one? But let him reflect that diseases which are so malignant that they do but gather strength from ordinary remedies may often be cured by the opposite treatment. I will therefore display before your grief all its woes and miseries. This will be to effect a cure, not by soothing measures, but by cautery and the knife. What shall I gain by this? I shall make the mind that could overcome so many sorrows ashamed to bewail one wound more in a body so full of scars. Let those whose feeble minds have been enervated by a long period of happiness weep and lament for many days and faint away on receiving the slightest blow. But those whose years have all been passed amid catastrophes should bear the severest losses with brave and unyielding patience. Continual misfortune has this one advantage that it ends by rendering callous those whom it is always scourging. Ill fortune has given you no respite, and has not left even your birthday free from the bitterest grief. You lost your mother as soon as you were born, nay, while you were being born, and you came into life as it were an outcast. You grew up under a stepmother, who made in, who, whom you made into a mother by all the obedience and respect which even a real daughter could have bestowed upon her. And even a good stepmother costs everyone dear. You lost your most affectionate uncle, a brave and excellent man when you are awaiting his return, and, lest fortune should weaken its blows by dividing them, within a month you lost your beloved husband, by whom you, by whom you had become the mother of three children. This sorrowful news was brought you while you were already in mourning, while all your children were absent, so that all your misfortunes seemed to have been purposely brought upon you at a time when your grief could nowhere find any repose." I pass over all the dangers and alarms which you have endured without any respite. It was but the other day that you received the bones of three of your grandchildren in the bosom from which you had sent them forth. Less than twenty days after you had buried my child, who perished in your arms and amid your kisses, you heard that I had been exiled. You wanted only this drop in your cup to have to weep for those who still lived. 3. The last wound is, I admit, the severest that you have, have ever yet sustained. It has not merely torn the skin, but has pierced you to the very heart. Yet as recruits cry aloud when only slightly wounded, and shudder more at the hands of the, the surgeon than at the sword, while veterans, even when transfixed, allow their hurts to be dressed without a groan, and as patiently as if they were in someone else's body, so now you ought to offer yourself courageously to be healed." Lay aside lamentations and wailings, and all the usual noisy manifestations of female sorrow. You have gained nothing by so many misfortunes if you have not learned how to suffer. Now, do I seem not to have spared you? Nay, I have not passed over any of your sorrows, but have placed them all together in a mass before you. 4. I have done this by way of a heroic, heroic, sorry, let me try that one again. I have done this by way of a heroic remedy, for I have determined to conquer this grief of yours, not merely to limit it, and I shall conquer it, I believe. In the first place, I can prove that I am not suffering enough to entitle me to be called unhappy, let alone to justify me in rendering my family unhappy. And secondly, if I can deal with your case and prove that even your misfortunes, which comes upon you entirely through me, is not a severe one. 
The point to which I shall first address myself is that of which your motherly love longs to hear. I mean that I am not suffering. If I can, I will make it clear to you that the events by which you think that I am overwhelmed are not endurable. If you are, are, are not unendurable, if you cannot believe this, I at any rate shall be all the more pleased with myself for being happy under circumstances which could make most men miserable. You need not believe what others say about me. That you may not be puzzled by any uncertainty as to what to think, I distinctly tell you that I am not miserable. I will add, for your greater comfort, that it is not possible for me to be made miserable. <laughs> Five. We are born to a comfortable position enough if we do not afterwards lose it. The aim of nature has been to enable us to live well without needing a vast apparatus to enable us to do so. Every man is able by himself to make himself happy. External circumstances have very little importance either for good or for evil. The wise man is neither elated by prosperity nor depressed by adversity, for he has always endeavored to depend chiefly upon himself and to derive all his joys from himself. Do I, then, call myself a wise man? Far from it, for were I able to profess myself wise, I should not only say that I was not unhappy, but should avow myself to, the most, to be the most fortunate of men and to be raised almost to the level of a god. As it is, I have applied myself to the society of wise men, which suffices to lighten all sorrows, and, not being as yet able to rely upon my own strength, I have betaken myself for refuge to the camp of others, of those, namely, who can easily defend both themselves and their friends. They have ordered me always to stand as if it were on guard, and to mark the attacks and charges of fortune long before she delivers them. She is only terrible to those whom she catches unawares. He who is always looking out for her assault easily sustains it. For so, for so also an invasion of the enemy overthrows those by whom it is unexpected. But those who have prepared themselves for the coming war before it broke out stand in their ranks fully equipped and repel with ease the first, which is always the most furious onset. I have never trusted fortune, even when she seemed most peaceful. I have accepted all the gifts of wealth, high office, and influence which she has so bountifully bestowed on me in such a manner that she can take them back again without disturbing me. I have kept a great distance between them and myself, and therefore she has taken them, not painfully torn them away from me. No man loses anything by the frowns of misfortune unless he has been deceived by her smiles. Those who have enjoyed her bounty as though it were their own heritage forever, and who have chosen to take precedence of others because of it, lie in abject sorrow when her unreal and fleeting delights forsake their empty childish minds that know nothing about solid pleasure. But he who has not been puffed up by success does not collapse after failure. He possesses a mind of tried constancy, superior to the influences of either state, of either state. For even in the midst of prosperity, he has experimented upon his powers of enduring adversity. Consequently, I have always believed that there was no real good in any of these things which all men desire. I then found that they were empty, and merely painted over with artificial and deceitful dyes, without containing anything within which corresponds to their outside. I now find nothing so harsh and fearful as the common opinion of mankind threaten me with in this which is known as adversity. The word itself, owing to the prevalent belief and ideas current about it, strikes somewhat unpleasantly upon one's ears, and thrills the hearers as something dismal and accursed, for so hath the vulgar decreed that it should be. 
but a great many of the decrees of the vulgar are reversed by the wise. 6. Setting aside, then, the verdict of the majority, who are carried away by the first appearance of things and the usual opinion about them, let us consider what is meant by exile, clearly a changing from one place to another. That I may not seem to be narrowing its force and taking away its worst parts, I must add that this changing of place is accompanied by poverty, disgrace, and contempt. Against these I will combat later on. Meanwhile, I wish to consider what there is unpleasant in the mere act of changing one's place of abode. It's unbearable, men say, to lose one's native land. Look, I pray you, on the vast crowds, for whom all the countless roofs of Rome can scarcely find shelter, the greater part of those crowds have lost their native land. They have flocked hither from their country towns and colonies, and in fine from all parts of the world. Some have been brought by ambition, some of the exigencies of some by the exigencies of public office, some by being entrusted with embassies, some by luxury which seeks a convenient spot, rich in vices for its exercise, some by their wish for a liberal education, others by a wish to see the public shows. Some have been led hither by friendship, some by industry, which finds here a wide field for the display of its powers. Some have been brought, oh sorry, some have brought their beauty for sale, some their eloquence. People of every kind assemble themselves in Rome, which sets a high price both upon virtues and vices. Bid them all to be summoned to answer their names, and ask each one from what home he has come. You will find that the greater part of them have left their own abodes." and journeyed to a city which, though great and beauteous beyond all others, is nevertheless not their own. Then leave this city, which may be said to be the common property of all men, and visit all other towns. There is not one of them which does not contain a large proportion of aliens. Pass away from those whose delightful situation and convenient position attracts many settlers, Examine wildernesses and most rugged islands, Syathus and Seriphus, Gyaris and Corsica. You will find no place of exile where someone does not dwell for his own pleasure. What can be found barer or more precipitous on every side than this rock? What more barren in respect of food? What more uncouth in its inhabitants? More mountainous in, in its configuration? Or more rigorous in its climate? Yet even here, there are more strangers than natives. So far, therefore, is the mere change of place from being irksome that even this place has has allured some away from their country. I find some writers who declare that mankind has a natural itch for change of abode and alteration of domicile, for the mind of man is wandering and unquiet. It never stands still, but spreads itself abroad and sends forth its thoughts into all regions, known or unknown, being nomadic impatient of repose, and loving novelty beyond everything else. You need not be surprised at this. If you reflect upon its original source, it is, not for, is, sorry, it is not formed from the same elements as the heavy and earthly body, but from heavenly spirit. Now heavenly things are by their nature always in motion, speeding along and flying with greatest swiftness. Look at the luminaries which light the world. None of them stand still. The sun is perpetually in motion and passes from one quarter to another, and although he revolves with the entire heaven, yet nevertheless, he has a motion in the contrary direction to that of the universe itself, and passes through all the constellations without remaining in any. His wandering is incessant, and he never ceases to move from place to place. 
All things continually revolve and are forever changing. They pass from one position to another in accordance with the natural and unalterable laws. After they have completed a certain circuit in a fixed space of time, they begin again the path which they had previously trodden. Be not surprised, then, if the human mind, which is formed from the same seeds as the heavenly bodies, delights in changing and wandering, since the divine nature itself either takes pleasure in constantly exceeding swift motion, or perhaps even preserve, preserves its existence thereby. 7. Come now, turn from divine to human affairs. You will see that whole tribes and nations have changed their abodes. What is the meaning of Greek cities in the midst of barbarous districts, or of the Macedonian language existing among the Indians and the Persians? Scythia and all that region which swarms with wild and uncivilized tribes boasts, nevertheless, Achaean cities along the shores of the Black Sea. Neither the rigors of eternal winter, nor the character of men as savage as their climate has pre prevented people migrating thither. There is a mass of Athenians in Asia Minor. Miletus has set out into various parts of the world citizens, sorry, has sent out into various parts of the world citizens enough to populate 75 cities. The whole coast of Italy, which is washed by the lower sea, is a part of what was once Greater Greece. Asia claims the Tuscans as her own. There are Tyrians living in Africa, Carthaginians in Spain. Greeks have pushed in among the Gauls and Gauls among the Greeks. The Pyrenees have proved no barrier to the Germans. Human caprice makes its way through pathless and unknown regions. Men drag along with them their children, their wives, and their aged and worn-out parents. Some have been tossed hither and thither by long wanderings until they have become too wearied to choose an abode, but have settled in whatever place was nearest to them. Others have made themselves masters of foreign countries by force of arms. Some nations, while making for parts unknown, have been swallowed up by the sea. Some have established themselves in the place in which they were originally stranded by utter destitution. Nor have all men had the same reasons for leaving their country and for seeking a new one. Some have escaped from their cities when destroyed by hostile armies and, having lost their own lands, have been thrust upon those of others. Some have been cast out by domestic quarrels. Some have been driven forth in consequence of an excess of population in order to relieve the pressures at home. Some have been forced to leave by pestilence or frequent earthquakes or some unbearable defects of a barren soil. Some have been seduced by the fame of a fertile and overpraised clime. Different people have been led away from their homes by different causes. But in all cases, it is clear that nothing remains in the same place in which it was born. The movement of the human race is perpetual. In this vast world, some changes take place daily. The foundations of new cities are laid, new names of nations arise, while the former ones die out or become absorbed, absorbed by more powerful ones. And yet, what else are all these general migrations but the banishment of whole peoples? Why should I lead you through all these details? What is the use of mentioning Antenor, the founder of Padua, or Evander, who established his kingdom of Arcadian settlers in the banks of the Tiber, Tiber, or Diomedes and the other heroes, both victors and vanquished, whom the Trojan War scattered over lands which were not their own? It is a fact that the Roman Empire itself traces its origin back to an exile as its founder, who, fleeing from his country after its conquest with what few relics he had saved from the wreck, had been brought to Italy by hard necessity and fear of his conqueror, which bade him seek distant lands. Since then, how many colonies has this people sent forth into every province? Wherever the Roman conquers, there he dwells. 
These migrations always found people eager to take part in them, and veteran soldiers desert their native hearths and follow the flag of the colonists across the sea. The matter does not need illustrations by any more examples. Yet I will add one more, which I have before my eyes. This very island has often changed its inhabitants, not to mention more ancient events which have become obscure from their antiquity. The Greeks who inhabit Marseille in the, at the present day, when they left Phocaea, Fo, Phocaea, Phocaea, we'll say that, first settled here, and it is doubtful what drove them hence, whether it was the rigor of the climate, the sight of the more powerful land in Italy, or the want of harbors on the coast. For the fact of their having placed themselves in the midst of what were then the most savage and uncouth tribes of Gaul proves that they were not driven hence by the ferocity of the natives. Subsequently, the Ligurians came over into this same island and also the Spaniards, which is proved by the resemblance of their customs. For they wear the same head coverings and the same sort of shoes as the Cantabrians, and some of their words are the same. For by association with Greeks and Ligurians, they have entirely lost their native speech. Hither since... Then they have been brought there. Uh, then have been brought two Roman colonies, one by Marius, the other by Sulla. So often the pot has the population of this barren and thorny rock been changed. In fine, you will scarcely find any land which is still in the hands of its original inhabitants. All peoples have become confused and intermingled. One has become another. One has wished for what another scorned. Some have been driven out of the land which they took from another. Thus fate has decreed that nothing should ever enjoy an uninterrupted course of good fortune. 8. Vero, the most learned of all Romans, thought that for the mere change of place, apart from the other evils attendant on exile, we may find a sufficient remedy in the thought that wherever we go, we always have the same nature to deal with. Marcus Brutus thought that there was sufficient comfort in the thought that those who go into exile are permitted to carry their virtues thither with them. Though one might think that neither of these alone were able to console an exile, yet it must be confessed that when combined, they have great power. For how very little it is that we lose. Whithersoever we betake ourselves, two most excellent things will accompany us, namely, a common nature and our own special virtue. Believe me, this is the work of whoever was the creator of the universe, whether he be an all-powerful deity, an incorporeal mind which affects vast works, a divine spirit by which all things from the greatest to the smallest are equally pervaded, or fate, and an unalterable connected sequence of events. This, I say, is its work, that nothing above the very lowest can ever fall into the power of another. All that is best for a man's enjoyment lies beyond human power and can neither be bestowed or taken away. This world, the greatest and the most beautiful of nature's productions, and its noblest part, a mind which can behold and admire it, are our own property, and will remain with us as long as we ourselves endure. Let us therefore briskly and cheerfully hasten, with undaunted steps, whithersoever circumstances call us. Let us wander over whatever countries we please. No place of banishment can be found in the whole world in which man cannot find a home. I can raise my eyes from the earth to the sky in one place as well as in another. The heavenly bodies are everywhere equally near to mankind. Accordingly, as long as my eyes are not deprived of that spectacle of which they, 
can never have their fill, as long as I am allowed to gaze on the sun and moon, to dwell upon the other stars, to speculate upon their risings and settings, their periods and the reasons why they move faster or slower, to see so many stars glittering through the night, some fixed, some not moving in a wide orbit but revolving in their own proper track, some suddenly diverging from it, some dazzling our eyes by a fiery blaze as though they were falling or flying along drawing after them a long trail of brilliant light. While I am permitted to commune with these and to hold intercourse as far as a human being may with all the company of heaven, while I can raise my spirit aloft to view its kindred sparks above, what does it matter upon what soil I tread? 9. But this country does not produce beautiful or fruit-bearing trees. It is not watered by the courses of large or navigable rivers. It bears nothing which other nations would covet, since its produce barely suffices to support its inhabitants. No precious marbles are quarried here, no veins of gold and silver are dug out. What of that? It must be a narrow mind that takes pleasure in things of the earth. It ought to be turned away from them to the contemplation of those things which can be seen everywhere, which are equally brilliant everywhere. We ought to reflect also that these vulgar matters, by a mistaken perversion of ideas, prevent really good things reaching us. The further men stretch out their porticos, the higher they raise their towers, the more widely they extend their streets, the deeper they sink their retreats from the heats of summer, the more ponderous the roofs which they cover their banqueting halls, the more there will be to obstruct their view of heaven. Fortune has cast you into a country in which there is no lodging more splendid than a cottage. You must indeed have a poor spirit, and one which seeks low sources of consolation if you endure this bravely because you have seen the cottage of Romulus. Say rather, should that lowly barn be entered by the virtues, it will straightway become more beautiful than any temple, because within it will be seen justice, self-restraint, prudence, love, a right division of all duties, a knowledge of all things on earth, on earth and in heaven. No place can be narrow if it contains such a company of the greatest virtues. No exile can be irksome in which one can be attended by all these companions. Brutus, in the book which he wrote upon virtue, says that he saw Marcellus in exile at Miletine, living as happily as it permitted, as it is permitted to man to live, and never keener in this pursuit of literature than at the time. He consequently adds the reflection, I seemed rather to be going into exile myself when I had to return without him than to be leaving him in exile. Oh, how much more fortunate was Marcellus at that time when Brutus praised him for his exile than when Rome praised him for his consulship. What a man that must have been who made, an, who made anyone think himself exiled because he was leaving him in exile. What a man that must have been who attracted the admiration of one whom even his friend Cato admired. Brutus goes on to say, Gaius Caesar sailed past Mytilene without landing because he could not bear to see a fallen man. The Senate did not indeed obtain his recall by public petition, being so anxious and sorrowful the while that you would have thought that they were all that they all were of Brutus's mind that day, and were not pleading the cause of Marcellus, but their own, that they might not be sent into exile by being deprived of him. Yet he gained far greater glory on the day when Brutus could not bear to leave him in exile, and Caesar could not bear to see him, for each of them bore witness to his worth. Brutus grieved and Caesar blushed at going home without Marcellus. Can you doubt that so great a man as Marcellus frequently encouraged himself to endure his exile patiently in some such terms as these? The loss of your country is no misery to you. 
You have so steeped yourself in philosophic lore as to know what all the world, to know that all the world is the wise man's country. What? Was not this very man who banished you absent from his country for ten successive years? He was, no doubt, engaged in the extension of the empire, but for all that he was absent from his country. Now see how his presence is required in Africa, which threatens to rekindle the war, in Spain, which is nursing up again the strength of the broken and shattered opposite faction, in treacherous Egypt, in fine in all parts of the world, for all are watching their opportunity to seize the empire at a disadvantage. Which will he go meet first? Which part of the universal conspiracy will he first oppose? His victory will drag him through every country in the world. Let nations look up to him and worship him. Do thou live satisfied with the admiration of Brutus. 10. Marcellus, then, nobly endured his exile, and his change of place made no change in his mind, even though it was accompanied by poverty, in which every man who has not fallen into the madness of avarice and luxury, which upset all our ideas, sees no harm. Indeed, how very little is required to keep a man alive, and who that has any virtue whatever will find this fail him? As for myself, I do not feel that I have lost my wealth, but my occupation. The wants of the body are few. It wants protection from the cold and the means of allaying hunger and thirst. All desires beyond these are vices, not necessities. There is no need for prying into all the depths of the sea, for loading one's stomach with heaps of slaughtered animals, or for tearing up shellfish from the unknown shore of the furthest sea. May the gods and goddesses bring ruin upon those whose luxury transcends the bounds of an empire which is already ready perilously wide. They want to have their ostentatious kitchens supplied with game from the other side of the phasis. And though Rome has not yet obtained satisfaction from the Parthians, they are not ashamed to obtain birds from them. They bring together from all regions everything known or unknown to tempt their fastidious palate. Food, which their stomach, worn out with delicacies, can scarcely retain, is brought from the most distant ocean. They vomit that they may eat, and eat that they may vomit, and do not even deign to digest the banquets which they ransack the globe to obtain. If a man despises these things, what harm can poverty do to him? If, the, if he desires them, then poverty even does him good, for lie is cured in spite of himself. And though he will not receive remedies even upon compulsion, yet while he is unable to fulfill his wishes, he is, he is as though he had them not. Gaius Caesar, whom in my opinion nature produced in order to show what unlimited vice would be capable of when combined with unlimited power, dined one day at a cost of ten millions of surstices. And though in this he had the assistance of the intelligence of all his subjects, yet he could hardly find how to make one dinner out of the tribute money of three provinces. How unhappy are they whose appetite can only be aroused by costly food. And the costliness of food depends not upon its delightful flavor and sweetness of taste, but upon its rarity and the difficulty of procuring it. Otherwise, if they chose to return to their sound senses, what need would they have of so many arts which minister to the stomach? of so great a commerce, of such ravaging of forests, of such ransacking of the depths of the sea. Food is to be found everywhere, and has been placed by nature in every part of the world, but they pass by it as though they were blind, and wander, in, wander through all countries, cross the seas, and ex excite at a great cost the hunger which they might allay at a small one. One would like to say, why do you launch ships? Why do you arm your hands for battle both with men and wild beasts? 
Why do you run so riotously hither and thither? Why do you amass fortune after fortune? Are you unwilling to remember how small our bodies are? Is it not frenzy and the wildest insanity to wish for so much when you contain so little? Though you may increase your income and extend the boundaries of your property, yet you never can enlarge your own bodies. When your business transactions have turned out well, when you have made a successful campaign, when you have collected the food for which you have hunted through all lands, you will have no place in which to bestow all these superfluities. Sorry, super, <laughs> superfluities. Why do you strive to obtain so much? Do you think that our ancestors, whose virtue supports our vices even to the present day, were unhappy, though they dressed their food with their own hands, though the earth was their bed, though their roofs did not yet glitter with gold, nor their temples with precious stones? And so they used then to swear with scrupulous honesty by earthenware goods, or sorry, earthenware gods, those who called these gods to witness would go back to the enemy for certain death rather than break their word? Do you suppose that our dictator who granted an audience to the ambassador of the Samnites while he roasted the commonest food before the fire himself with that very hand with which he had so often smitten the enemy and with which he had placed his laurel wreath upon the lap of Cap Capitolian Jove enjoyed life less than the Aspicius who lived in our own days, whose habits tainted the entire century, who set himself up as a professor of gastronomy in that very city from which philosophers once were banished as corruptors of the youth? It is worthwhile to know his end. After he had spent a hundred millions of surstices on his kitchen and had wasted on each single banquet a sum equal to so many presents from the reigning emperors and the vast revenue which he drew from the capital being overburdened with debt, he then for the first time was forced to examine his accounts. He calculated that he would have 10 million left of his fortune and as though he would live a life of mere starvation on... 10 millions put an end to his life by poison. How great must the luxury of that man have been to whom 10 millions signified want? Can you think after this that the amount of money necessary to make a fortune depends upon its actual extent rather than the mind of its owner? Here was a man who shuddered at the thought of a fortune of 10 million surstices and escaped by poison from a prospect which other men pray for. Yet for a mind so diseased, that last draught of his was the most wholesome. He was really eating and drinking poisons when he was not only enjoying, but bo boasting of his enormous banquets, when he was flaunting his vices, when he was causing his country to follow his example, when he was inviting youths to imitate him, albeit youth is quick to learn evil without being provided with a model to copy. This is what befalls those who do not use their wealth according to reason, which has fixed limits but according to vicious fashion, whose caprices are boundless and immeasurable. Nothing is sufficient for covetous, covetous desire, but nature can be satisfied even with scant measure. The poverty of an exile, therefore, causes no inconvenience, for no place of exile is so barren as not, produ not to produce what is abundantly, abundantly sufficient to support a man." Okay, we're about halfway through, and I think I'm going to stop there because my voice is just about cooked. Uh, and, you know, we're getting, we're, we're pushing some time limits here. So, uh, part two is going to come next week. I will read 11 through 20 and finish off this letter from Seneca to his mom. So, I, I think it's fun when he talks about the sun as moving. Um, we kind of seem to think it stands still, but hey, it's still floating through space, right? It's, it's still on the move, just not in the way that he thought. And I love his talking about the guy who 
drank poison because he had wasted all his money on giant banquets. That's, that's kind of fun. Those are fun times. Okay. So this has been Christmas stuff. You should know with me, your host, AJ Hannenberg, and we'll be back with more episodes in the new year. Until then you can enjoy a couple more essays read by me whenever I find the time to do it. So, okay. Signing off. Have a great day. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas.